0: The murder of eight year old Kelly Ann Prosser has prompted me to write. As a parent, I am greatly shocked and frightened by the ever increasing possibility that something like this malicious death could occur in my own family. Most of us have been fortunate enough not to have to fully comprehend the agony and grief Kelly's family is obviously experiencing. For most of us, it's gruesome enough just to know it. An eight year old child, or any child for that matter, can hardly defend herself against an adult intent on doing bodily harm. I shudder to think of how that child felt the day she died. Vicious torturings and murders of this nature must cease. I pray that the perverted degenerate who ended this child's life is found and justice is done. Nancy J. Belfry, Columbus, Ohio, October 8, 1982. Columbus Dispatch, Letter to the Editor, read by Officer Morales Dyer.
1: Panic, fear, and outrage were the underlying sentiments throughout the Columbus community. Two years prior, in a nearby suburb, only a few miles away from where Kelly was last seen, another 8-year-old girl walking home from school was abducted and murdered. That case remains unsolved. Just two days prior to Kelly's disappearance, yet another 8-year-old girl nearby was the victim of an abduction attempt by a man described as a heavyset man with a beard. The community was extremely concerned and upset after these murders. It was terrible enough that one child was murdered, but to have a second crime was terrifying for parents. While the previous murder in the nearby suburb showed some similarities, there were also some significant differences in the cases. At this point, it is believed that the cases are not connected. For Kelly's family, the news of her death brought unbearable heartache. Given the notoriety of Kelly's case, the attention also brought unfair criticism to an already grief-stricken family. Kelly's mother, Linda, recounts the days following Kelly's death.
2: I guess some things that come back to my mind all the time is how much... I mean, there was a lot of people who helped look for her, and there was a lot of goodness. But on the flip side... uh, It was the constant harassing and blaming us. I would get phone calls at work. Um, I started taking and walking my son to his school bus stop. And people apparently didn't recognize me and talked about it and talked about how horrible a parent I was. And really, all I wanted was my daughter back. I really didn't cope with it that well at all for the first two years. I mean, because I, I didn't believe it. Um, I could not go to her funeral. I wasn't gonna go at all and someone finally came and got me and made me go and I made him close the casket, I couldn't look at it. And with all those people there, it wasn't until everybody was out that I had him open the casket to make sure it was her. And over the years, I've just tried to become a survivor, because that's what it's about. You have to become a survivor Um, in order to work with and for Kelly and just find ways to find some kind of peace.
1: Since Kelly's body had been located in a cornfield west of Columbus, Columbus police homicide detectives were assigned to Kelly's case and started working tirelessly to solve her murder. Remember Calvin, who left for West Virginia and had an active warrant for his arrest... On Wednesday evening the 22nd, an anonymous call was received by the sergeant in the Juvenile Bureau. An upset woman called in and said that she was a neighbor of Calvin's, and she observed him carrying what appeared to be a heavy garbage bag out to his trunk. The lead detective was able to establish that Calvin had been at work Monday until around 3.25 p.m. On that day, Calvin left work early, but was agitated after receiving two phone calls at work according to his boss. He didn't show up for work the following day, and his wife was contacted. She stated that he wouldn't be in for several days, but she didn't want to give details about Calvin's absence, and she abruptly ended the conversation. Calvin returned from out of state the following day, Thursday the 23rd, and he turned himself in. He was arrested for his outstanding warrant. It was also discovered that Calvin's son possibly knew Kelly's biological father,
3: There was a lot of circumstantial evidence surrounding Calvin at this point. Canvases of the neighborhood were turning up no information. No one saw anything or reported any additional sightings of Kelly. Detectives were also canvassing to see if anyone spotted Calvin in the area during the time Kelly was abducted. Detectives were trying to determine if Kelly knew her abductor or not. Kelly's mother didn't believe that she would get into a car with a stranger, but no one really knows. By all accounts, Kelly was a very friendly child, and it's really impossible to say what a child would do if someone asked them to take a ride or to come look at something in their car.
1: Getting back to Calvin, at this point, he was the primary suspect in the investigation. A West Virginia state trooper had located his vehicle parked in a remote location in West Virginia. A search warrant was secured for that vehicle, and that search warrant was served with detectives who were from Columbus Division of Police. Actually, the same detectives that processed the crime scene in Madison County. A lot of people were interviewed and indicated that they had seen Calvin in West Virginia on Tuesday the 21st and Wednesday the 22nd. But detectives could only find a couple of people that confirmed he had arrived on Monday night, the 20th, the day that Kelly went missing. Detectives were leery about his alibi, though, because it was given by family members one of whom appeared to have been coached about what time to say she saw him. People called in saying they saw Calvin close to where Kelly was last seen on Monday. However, when detectives attempted to verify this information, they were met with dead ends. They found one woman who believed she saw Calvin on Monday or Tuesday, and she stated he was alone. Calvin's wife was interviewed about the whereabouts of her husband. Calvin's wife shared that on Monday the 20th, the same day that Kelly was abducted, a card from the Columbus Division of Police was left in her front door, asking Calvin to call them about a case. The case they wanted to speak with Calvin about was from Sunday the 19th, the previous day when a female accused Calvin of molesting her. Calvin's wife notified him of this while he was at work. Calvin immediately decided to leave town because he was afraid of being arrested and claimed he was innocent.
3: So Calvin left because of this claiming his innocence, but making himself look completely guilty in the Kelly Prosser case. Calvin had told his wife that due to prior arrests, a lawyer he had consulted had told him that if he was ever talked to by the police about anything involving juveniles, that he would be immediately arrested. Calvin, believing that, left the state so that everything could blow over, and allegedly didn't know he was a suspect in Kelly's disappearance until Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. The detectives did everything they could to see if Calvin's alibi held up. They tracked down the phone calls he made from a gas station, they followed up on receipts with family, with people who might have seen him in town, etc. The witness who believed she saw him putting something in his trunk was re-interviewed. Her story started to change, and she was no longer sure who she saw or even what she saw. Additionally, you remember how officers believed that they might have seen Calvin with a little girl during the time? Other people had also called in the same information. Well, it actually turned out that the person everyone saw was another man and his granddaughter. That man called in and identified himself and officers were able to determine that it wasn't Calvin. So the circumstantial evidence against Calvin started to fall apart. His behavior was still very strange and suspect, but a lot of his story started to check out. There were still some strange aspects to his behavior and what people were saying about him. The important thing is that as his story started to check out, the detectives were now left wondering if they had the right person or if his odd behavior just painted the picture of a guilty man.
1: As detectives were checking on Calvin's alibi, they weren't discarding or ignoring any other tips. Several people were interviewed as witnesses, some under hypnosis. Detectives didn't leave any stone unturned. Family was interviewed and re-interviewed, trying to get any information that might give some insight into who would have abducted Kelly. In reviewing this case, I thought it was interesting how many people confessed to committing this crime. Those people were mostly ultimately ruled out. Several people made confessions, some while intoxicated, and detectives investigated and found each and every confession to be false. Other suspects were emerging as new information was revealed. Around this same time, Crime Stoppers featured Kelly's case. And if you don't know what Crime Stoppers is, you can visit their website, stopcrime.org, for more information. From this release, an anonymous informant called in with some very interesting information. Crime Stoppers uses numbers to classify callers, so we will also. Let's call this caller 1234. 1234 called in multiple times, alleging things that occurred that led to the abduction and murder of Kelly. Investigators ended up meeting in person with 1234 to try and verify his information and to see if this was legitimate. Turns out, he wasn't. The information he was giving was very cyclical and wasn't leading anywhere. Further investigation revealed that 1234 was also known to other agencies. 1234 was known to have mental illness and had called in a variety of reports over the years that were untrue. Detectives spent hours and hours on the phone with 1234, in person with him, and trying to verify his information. Another dead end. Crime Stoppers usually has a lot of success with their releases, but as with any media release, there are always tipsters that call in with information that ultimately proves to be either useless or unrelated. Interestingly, a number of suspects that were investigated for Kelly's murder were ultimately arrested for other crimes. Two of those were arrested for homicide, and one was arrested for child pornography. Another suspect confessed to multiple rapes and was subsequently arrested and charged. All of these were ruled out for involvement in Kelly's homicide, though.
3: Time was passing, and Kelly's case was still unsolved. Another suspect appears, who we will call Gary. Gary committed suicide but his family alleged that just prior to doing so, he had made a confession to having killed Kelly. Detectives tracked down family members and learned that Gary's child used to play with Kelly. One of Gary's prior roommate's child was also a playmate of Kelly's. Friends say they knew he was in the area at the time of Kelly's abduction and he lived in the area. A lot of signs started to point to Gary. A short time prior to Kelly's murder, Gary was also accused of molesting his own daughter. One witness believed that Kelly might be a witness in the daughter's case against Gary. Gary was ultimately arrested and charged for the assaults on his daughter. He committed suicide shortly after. Former employers, family members, friends, associates, and others were all interviewed, trying to discover if Gary was connected to Kelly's homicide. Ultimately, Detectives developed enough of a case and were able to obtain DNA and run the test, and ended up excluding Gary as a suspect. This case has presented such a challenge to investigators because there have been so many viable suspects, many of whom were ruled out years later thanks to advances in DNA technology. In fact, many more suspects have been investigated over the years and ruled out because of DNA. Several suspects have been asked for consent, and they have voluntarily given DNA. Kelly's former babysitter was murdered out of a domestic situation just a few years after Kelly. The man arrested for her murder wrote to investigators and gave information about Kelly's homicide. That suspect was also ruled out via interview and DNA. Enough people called in and were interviewed in regards to another suspect, who, for the purposes of this podcast, we will call Marvin. Because of the results of the interviews, detectives were able to obtain a warrant to disinter his body and obtain DNA. The DNA obtained ruled out Marvin as a suspect. Again, because of DNA, another suspect was eliminated, who otherwise would have remained a suspect. DNA has been taken from numerous suspects and family members. Witnesses have been re-interviewed, old tips have been revisited, the sheer number of suspects in this case is staggering. I think it's important to note that even though this occurred in 1982, this case has never been filed away and forgotten about. Multiple detectives have worked this case over the years, following leads and trying to work it with new eyes. One detective who worked on the case and eliminated multiple suspects was Detective Ron Custer,
4: My name is Ron Custer, retired detective from the Columbus Division of Police Cold Case Unit, where I was assigned in 2014. I took a very personal interest in this case, being, number one, time was of the essence. When you're talking at that time, 32 years later, you know that uh, valuable information is going to be missed, forgotten, or just uh, no longer available. So I knew that uh, something that I had to get into right away, and it was very important to do so so much work had gone into it by previous detectives. You don't want, you want to pick up and keep running with it the best you can. One thing that you do is you fully assess the package and make sure there's still things that are to be done. You always go back to your first source. That would be the reporting person. That would be been the mother, Linda Garner. And you start looking at all the people, and the information that's come in over the years. Again, with the variety of detectives and time that elapsed that was spent on this, uh, you uh, kind of follow up on the, the rumors, if you will, the secondhand information that comes through. And you have to weigh that out to see exactly where it is you need to go with the information you're receiving. A lot of good information comes in with well intentions, but sometimes it can misdirect you on an investigation. So you you basically look at what you have, and you start from scratch with a fresh mind. And it's always important to have that when you look at these cold cases because it's the the newest, freshest mind. Um, Sometimes you get... I don't want to say blinded, uh, but you can spend so much time on a case while trying to handle other responsibilities that you may overlook something. So it's always great to have uh, you know the other resources, and of course
1: nowadays technology to help you advance the investigation. In two thousand and fourteen, Detective Custer worked with Crime Stoppers to create another release. That release garnered several new leads. Detective Custer was very focused on where Kelly was found and the significance of her raincoat being found in the road.
4: I have a personal different belief why that coat's there. And it could be way off, don't know if anyone else believes as I do, but I believe that coat was placed there for a reason, to find her. Again, it all circles back to Kelly being dressed, uh, Kelly being placed in a very normal position, if you will, and I believe that the person or persons who were responsible for placing her in that field wanted her found. You need to think back again, 1982, people weren't about DNA. They weren't about fingerprint. You didn't have all the crime shows that shows you can solve a crime in an hour, you know, with all the technology. But still, my belief is this is a young little girl, and they wanted someone to know that, hey, here's a coat. Let's hope that they match it up and realize there's somebody here in the cornfield. Again, I, I could be way off, but, you know, that's one thing you do as detectives. you got to lean on something to kind of direct you through an investigation. So if, in fact, you do come across the person responsible, you can kind of learn the personality pretty quickly if you're right or not.
3: Another thing Detective Custer focused on was collecting voluntary DNA and eliminating suspects. Detective Custer gathered a lot of leads from his Crime Stoppers release and discussed how he processed the tips.
4: We interviewed and in DNA, got DNA from so many people. Um, people that was rumored to say they knew about it. People that was rumored to hear about it. Man, um, we don't just knock on doors and, as you know, you just don't accuse somebody without some basis of possibility that, yeah, this good person could be right. Let's clear this person is nothing else. And I, I approach people that way. You know, a lot of them knew about the case. I mean, because it was, I mean, some cases stick with you, especially if you lived in that area, if you knew the family. And some, because they were related to somebody that knew the family, you I know, mean, whatever the case may be, you approach and said, look, we want to clear as many people as we can. We get so many tips and people really truly believe that what they heard or what they seen is factual. And if nothing else, we want to clear you. And you'll find that I don't know if I had anybody refuse to give me their DNA.
3: Detective Custer mentioned that he spent a lot of time thinking about the motive of the suspect. Was it a crime of opportunity or was it planned? How did the actual abduction play out?
4: I think the thing that really um, I was hung up on, I guess, if Mm -hmm. no better certain term, is where she was found, Uh, why she was placed in a cornfield on a, I'm sure, a nice late summer evening or a cool evening, way far away from where she was picked up. Why there? Why so many miles off the highway? Why so many down a dark country road where very few people lived? What made it that point of placement, if you will, of Kelly, um, the choice? And I've always believed that the person of interest that's responsible for Kelly's death or has first-hand knowledge of it once lived on a property that was at the location where she was found it had long been gone um, when they located her body but through the investigation we was able to find that a possible suspect at one time lived exactly where she was found I want to say this is, because I remember we could see the stop sign Dana, when we stopped and again um, Let's see what the numbers are over there
0: because the yeah. GPS is saying. Because I remember, I remember, I remember the curve. That's why I am on telling you guys. That.
4: So you think so? This might have been that old drive here. Yeah. Yes. I'm I'm positive. I'm positive this so Yeah. Because like we'll this says East of thirty eight twenty five. And you're saying that it was off down there. She, she was found back ten rows, Dana. I don't recall, but she's placed back off the roadway. Where you wouldn't see her from the road. And it's by the. Uh, would have been green. It would have been at a peak height, right? provided a lot of privacy. Now we're assuming that it didn't come from the west because coming from Columbus, you're going to get off the first only available exit. It's a 29 or 42, mm-hmm. probably 42 because everyone's a more direct route. So right. let's just go out here to this location. 70 to forty-two Debbie Wilson Road. (laughs) Okay. Because that road doesn't go to the freeway. So again, you can see why it, it piqued my interest. I'm sure it did back then too, but why here? Right. And that's when I found there was a farmhouse here one time.
3: Another suspect was investigated by the detectives, and we're going to call him Brian. Brian had a lengthy criminal record, a lot of which was centered around sexual crimes like indecent exposure. Other police agencies were interviewed about Brian. His criminal record was examined and his alibi was checked. Detectives verified he was at work during the time of Kelly's abduction. Brian wasn't entirely ruled out, though. Detectives ended up coming back to him again because of some very specific details.
4: Going through the... Uh, work of the past detectives and the suspects that's been interviewed over the years, and the the tips that were called in you take all those resources and you run names and i i can't recall without being in front of me how I came across, but one of the suspects of interest or persons of interest, if you will, actually resided where we believe Kelly was found now of course, the mailbox was gone, there was no landmarkers denoting the actual addresses being where we believe she was found, looking at aerial photographs from the time the crime scene was first processed. But being east of, uh, this noted in the uh, location where Kelly was found, that's where I come to find that one of the addresses by a, a suspect, or potential person of interest, lived on A.W. Wilson Road at a number that would match east of the current landmark that's there. So, again, that's... When you tie in the possibility and the question, why so far from Columbus? Why so far off the freeway? Way out in the middle of a cornfield in the middle of nowhere. That's where my belief comes back to, is this person had a connection to that area and knew that they could stop on a dark country road, see down both ways, and see cars coming a long way away. So they felt safe and secure of placing Kelly where she was found. Um. Greg, I mean, imagine yep. parking here, you can see any cars coming from the west. You can see any cars for miles coming from the east. That's a good point. So you're not going to be, I mean, better place to hide her. Now, now you know why we swore with that guy. The guy in the farmhouse? Who lived out here, yeah.
1: Because of the past residence, Brian's alibi was revisited, and his boss was questioned the detectives through the years took it one step further this time and requested that he take a polygraph, which he passed. It's important to remember that this was still in the early 80s and DNA wasn't being tested. Because of his alibi, polygraph results, statements made by his boss and coworkers regarding his whereabouts, Brian was eventually set aside as a suspect.
3: As you can see, while a lot is known about the case and many suspects have been ruled out, the detectives assigned to this case still have some unanswered questions. It is our hope that someone out there knows something that could help answer some of the questions that still remain.
4: It's such a tragedy when you have a young victim, any victim, no matter what the age. But when you have children of your own, you kind of can relate. I can't imagine as a parent uh, having children of my own of having to uh, live with the unknown. Again, all the cases are important, but when you have such a young child and you get connected with the family and you become close, and you feel their heartache, you kind of take it personal. Linda's always been a great supporter of the police. You'll see throughout the years, numerous letters. I received cards and letters from her while I was working on the case, because she knew that diligently, um, I was was on it uh, the best I could. And to have the support from her and her belief that we were doing everything we could, she's never doubted any of the detectives prior to me, our efforts. Anyone who's had their hands in this, I know without a doubt they all did their very best to track that one lead. You know, find that one piece that somebody overlooked. And to this day, I think that all of them will say that they they did the very best.
1: This concludes Part 2. Please join us next Monday for Part 3, The Analysis.